Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick. Graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi there, I'm Don Glute. Among other credits, I made the 1969 amateur fan film called Spider-Man, and I'm going to be interviewed by Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson on The Marvelists. So stay tuned. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our very special guest, we want to tell you all at home how you can get hold of us on them, thar social medias. So without further ado or much more to come, go. Much apu about nothing. Uh... Go on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Marvelists. Give us a like on there. Go on Twitter and Instagram at The Marvelists. Go follow us individually on social media. I'm the one with a crap ton of them. So go on Facebook at facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster. On Twitter and Instagram at Peter Melnick. I'm also on TikTok for some reason at Peter Melnick, but better. And the, remember, ladies and germs, because hmm? I've always wanted to say that. And I haven't really said that on the show. Now that you have. Exactly. It's not really that... Good. Add that to the crap ton. Yeah. Anyway, there's only one place on the whole worldwide interwebs that you can find E. Wilson, and that is on Instagram at... On, in, over, Eddie, 9193. Besides, even. Prepositions. And then, Eddie, there's also a wide variety of ways to stream this program. Go on TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, SoundCloud, etc., etc. Spotify, and Spotify, that's the that's the biggin'. I want to go to the etc. But you can find us on all of those available for all iOS and Android devices. If you can wrangle up an RSS feed, you can stream us. You can also find us on iTunes where you can rate, review, subscribe, and sunny and share. (laughs) What? Subscribe and sunny and share? I get it. Anyway, you can find the us on... The beat goes on. Yeah, na 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 la dee da dee dee But you can find us on iTunes where you can rate, review, subscribe, and ignore that other joke, ladies and gentlemen. But Wait, five what? star if you're ever so inclined. And remember, Eddie... Hello? Go, Hello? Yeah. Let's introduce our special guest, shall well, we? Well, I'm still doing the intro, Eddie. No. You go on iTunes where you can four star... Cut. ...which is bad. <laughs> but five star, you keep me... <laughs> anyway... Much like the ice cream machine at McDonald's, four general, stars or below does not work. Five eh? star general, you're lucky I didn't shut the mic off. Yeah, Mike, Mike, who? <laughs> I can't make that joke on this show, Eddie. But there is another place that you can find us on Patreon.com. Support the show at Patreon.com/slash The Marvelous. <laughs> it's the first time I'm doing this one. Jeez. For, for as we did it before, Dingling. oh, before today. <laughs> but Yikes. you can find us on Patreon and support the show for as little as. $3 a month or $5 a month, or if you want to be one of the two people that does the $8 a month. So far. Gets you, well, you can only go up to two because I want to limit it to that because <gasps> with the eight, well, let's, let's Ooh, go Social distancing tiers. this too? Yeah, oh, geez. yeah, 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 yeah. Let's go with the different tiers. For $3 a month, you're able to get this show early and, you know, also a little uh, newsletter. I actually released the first newsletter. I wrote down my, you know, meanderings and thoughts. Are we giving out Kleenex with these tears? If we want. But for... <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> anyway, for $5 a month, you're able to listen to this show also again. All the $3 tier stuff. And it includes 
Fantastic Voyage, our 102 issue exploration of the Fantastic Four. So every month we talk about Stan and Jack's iconic run of the series. It's good to go back. Exactly. Ba da da da. Take you back. Da 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 da. Frank Stallone. Off of the Rocky soundtrack. Whoa, okay. And then for $8 a month, you get all of that content. But again, only two people are allowed to get it, one of which is friend of the show, Jeremy Bagley. And it also enables you the ability to pick an episode topic for us to talk about that month. Pretty cool, that right? Is, that is cool. Pretty, yeah. pretty good. Mm-hmm. Anyway, enough of my meanderings. On the other end of the tin can and string, we are joined with someone who has been a part of the Spider-Verse. We're get, we, keep, we keep getting these guys, and I love it. I love being able to say, I talked, and I'm talking to another technical Peter on the other line. But <laughs> this man was the very first ever live-action Spider-Man in the 1969 fan film of Spider-Man. Yeah, 69. And, ladies and gentlemen, we are joined with Donald Glute. Donald? Welcome. Hello, hi, how are you guys? Winded, or at least on Exhausted. his end, I think. <laughs> wow. But, yeah, it's, it's the cliche question, but how did you get into comics as a fan and also as a professional? As a fan? Uh, as a fan, I just, when I was a little kid, I, you know, my, my mother and my uncle and people used to give me comic books when I, you know, before I could even read, I just looked at the pictures. So I, I love comics ever since I was, ever since I can remember pretty much. And what did you start yeah. uh, wind up seeing, reading, or? Well, when I was a little kid, I read things. You know, they would, I would read whatever they would bring me. I read, and there were a lot of Superman comics, um, a lot of the Dell comics. You know, Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse and Tarzan. I remember a lot of Tarzans. You know, the Jesse Marsh Tarzans, and um, um, so you just a lot of that sort of thing. I mean. I didn't get into the horror comics and things until later, and the other superheroes until later. Uh, so it was mostly, you know, Superman. I didn't, it's funny, as a little kid, I didn't like Batman because the, whenever I saw the joke, when I would have flipped through the books at the newsstand or something, I'd see the Joker. That was kind of a scary figure for me when I was a really tiny little kid. Oh, yeah. So I stayed away from the Batmans, and I didn't particularly like the drawings the way they were done. So I stuck with the Supermans and the Tarzans and the, you know, uh, the funny animal stuff. And part of that, too, was probably you may have not been allowed to if it was, if it was look more, like, like you said, horror. That might have been too much for you at the time. Well, my mother, you know, kind of, kind of, uh, frowned on the horror stuff and of mm-hmm. course she was believing all that Dr. Wortham stuff that was coming out at the time so and, and uh, so I I stayed out I stayed away from the horror comics myself I did get a couple issues that I bought you know I just worked up my courage one was a, a Dick Briefer Frankenstein issue and there was another one I can't remember it had a lot of skeletons in it and um, and so I did have a few of them but uh, you know I just didn't like looking at those pictures and um so I, as I said, I stayed with the ones I mentioned. And, you know, during the 1960s, Marvel is getting to be one of the biggest things in the pop culture landscape, especially at that time. You know, you go to a college campus and there are the kids there reading Doctor Strange and you see the Marvel animated series on television at the time. But not many, like, how, how did you get into Marvel? You mean reading them or writing them? How, do you mean- uh, reading them. Reading them well, um, I was just at the newsstand one day, and I liked those. I liked those monster comics, you know that, 
Atlas was putting out before the superheroes came in, uh, you know, Googam, Son of Goom, and all those things. And uh, I loved those. And I saw the first issue of the Fantastic Four, which looked to me like one of the monster books. And so I bought it, and I just got sucked in from that point on. And then, of course, you know, Amazing Fantasy came out with Spider-Man. And, um, you know, it just one thing kind of led to another. I was really, uh, one thing that, I loved ever since I was a little tiny kid who were crossovers. And I like World's Finest comics because Superman and Batman were together in there. And every time there would be like a a guest appearance by Aquaman or Green Arrow or somebody in those Superman books, that was like a big event for me. And Marvel started doing that almost from the get-go. And so, you know, that was very appealing to me. I, I liked the fact that there was continuity from one story to the next and that there were these crossovers where... Ant-Man would appear in an Iron Man story or whatever it was, you know. And um, so uh, that was uh, the, the big appeal to me. And they had a sense of humor that the DC books didn't have and uh, a sort of a sense of humanity, too. The DC books were all kind of sterile. You know, they all all were kind of the same. In the Marvel books, you never knew what to expect. And I, I've noticed that with uh, the DC books. Like, as much as I like DC, I feel the unrelatability of the characters you know it's like they're i can't relate to a god like superman or a you know a billionaire like bruce wayne but i can relate yeah, to a character like spidey you can, relate to, you can relate to peter parker or somebody like that i think you hit the nail on the head donald because the relatability not only that but also uh with the fact that and they would do this on the comic book covers where you've got the world's finest but you knew that it was superman and batman you knew they were going to both be in there but when there was an extra one yes there would be in a in a little bit of a splash with the with the words guest featuring the flash kind of thing and so yeah. it was like another reason to buy and you were getting a bonus correct yeah yeah and one of the things in regards to that was the characters at the time like what were some of the ones that you know you what 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 made you want to go off and make your own fan films with these kind of characters? Well, I, I started out, you know, I was nine years old, so that was 1953. Mm. Uh, I was just getting into dinosaurs, and one of the reasons I was into dinosaurs was because of Joe Kubert's Tor comic that was coming out at the time, which I loved. It's still one of my favorite comic books of all time. But also, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, a Ray Harryhausen movie, he had just... I'd seen the trailers on TV, and I wanted to see that movie. So we went to see that movie, and I wanted to show that movie in my house, but I couldn't, you know, they couldn't buy, you know, VHS or DVDs back then, and none of the companies that were putting out movies for home use, like Castle Films, none of them were putting out any kind of monster movies. It was all westerns and travelogues and jungle films and cartoons and that kind of thing. And we had in our house, in our family, a 16-millimeter movie camera, a 16-millimeter movie projector, and a screen. So I figured the only way I was ever going to show that dinosaur movie was to make it myself. And that's what sort of, you know, got me interested in it. I, I, I really enjoyed making movies, and one thing kind of led to another. And before I knew it, I had a whole <laughs> backlog of, of different kinds of films. Um, superhero movies I started to make because um, there weren't any. You know, I mean, in those days, the only uh, way you could see a superhero in a live-action movie or a television show was either the old Superman 
Adventures of Superman television show with George Reeves, mm. or if you rented one of the old Republic serials, you know, like the Adventures of Captain Marvel or Spy Smasher. So again, I, you know, I decided to make them myself. And, um, you know, my first one was a Captain Marvel movie, and, and there's one, again, one thing led to another. I, I met a, a guy named Larry Ivy, who was a comic book artist, and he was making his uh, superhero films too, and he was a big inspiration on me. And he had a lot of costumes. He had a Batman costume and a Captain America costume. So I was able to use some of those costumes in my movies. So they were already made. So that's how I started making superhero films. That's... I wanted to see them, and nobody was making them. It was not like today where they're, they're mainstream. It's like, you know, every other movie comes out as a superhero film of some sort. But in those days, you know, they were, re I mean, they were almost non-existent. Thank you for bringing up Spice Measure too, Donald. I remember a long time ago when I was a kid, or a pretty long time ago, at least, when, at least when I'm sitting next to Peter, I'm a long time ago, that my dad uh, had a co-worker who mentioned Spice Smasher, and I never heard of that name before, and it didn't really ring anything. And then finally, at some point in my lifetime, I said, Spice Smasher, holy crap, this is what this guy was talking about. It, it really is a, a name, a character, or something like that. They so, weren't just making it up. Thanks for bringing that up. Um but you said dinosaurs. Did you actually have a favorite dinosaur? I was expecting you to ask if he actually had real dinosaurs. Well, that as, a little, as a little kid, all little boys like Tyrannosaurus Rex, you know, I guess that might have been my favorite. But, you know, my interest wasn't just in one kind of dinosaur. It was in the whole thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I was interested in the whole subject. I got really interested in paleontology, and I was reading a lot of books, and I was, as a kid, writing my own books, you know, on an amateur level, and... And so, uh, to this day, I, I mean, to me, they're just so—they're all so fascinating. They all have—they um, all have their 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 exceptional, fascinating, special features about them, yeah. and they're all connected in some way. I'm I'm really interested in the relationships between the different kinds. How this one related to that, and this one, you know, uh, was the predecessor of that one, and and that to me is the most fascinating thing right now. Um, not so much how they looked or what they ate or anything like that, but um, they're, relate, they're, they're mutual relationships. And, um, and so, you know, my interest now is, is, is very strong. I'm even, an, I'm even a volunteer at the Natural History Museum. I work in the dinosaur lab. Oh, wow. And I work on dinosaur bones one day a week, when, you know, except for this uh, crisis we're going through now where the museum is closed. But when it's not closed, I'm there one day a week, and you know, all day long I'm sitting there, you know, getting covered with dust and everything because we're going through this, these hundreds of millions of years old rocks and, and getting it all over ourselves. And so that, that's kind of a, 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 it's like an educational thing for, for me every week. That was probably even cooler because you were working with the stuff that you're learning about. Uh, I mean, I remember growing up and learning about dinosaurs and, you know, the Paleozoic or the Cenozoic Age kind of stuff. And for some reason I was kind of partial to the Stegosaurus myself. But uh, fast forward, Walter Simonson, who signs his name like, I think, a stegosaurus in that general uh -huh. shape. So here we are. And Ryan Stegman as well. Yeah, there you go. And when it came to these, you know, these fan films, I'm wondering, you know, how were you able to screen these? Like, where did you screen these at the time? Well, at the time, when I was making the early ones, um, I was just showing them, like, at parties and... I remember we had a science fair at the school where I made a movie about dinosaurs, and then when the teachers weren't in the room, I was putting on these monster movies. You know, I, I, 
I still can't believe I did that, you know, that I got away with that. And I almost got caught a few times. I remember having a uh, teenage monster, you know, teenage werewolf, teenage Frankenstein, just ready to turn the projector on. And the principal came in and she said, oh, Donald, I want to see your project. And I, I had to very quickly get that uh, that film off of there and put the real one on there, which was my science project. But that was how originally I would I would drag my projector around to friends' homes. You know, when we go out to dinner or something, I would have my movie projector in the trunk of the car and a bunch of films. And um, but then later on, back in the '60s when underground movies were very much in vogue, uh, a friend of mine was working out of a uh, an outfit in Chicago called the Chicago Film Co-op. And they were um, actually booking what they were then calling underground movies and experimental movies. I'm also calling them home movies. And they were, and, and I actually got some of them shown on television and some of them shown in theaters, you know, for people paying money to go to see. And, uh, and he also had a bus. He bought a bus. And then he had the bus converted into a traveling movie theater. And we'd go from one college campus to the next running our movies. And uh, so I got a lot of exposure with those films back in the 60s. And um, and I would run them at conventions, too. I would, you know, have my projector in the trunk of the car all the time. And uh, and then, you know, we would get a room or something uh, and, uh, you know, set up, set up a screen or show them on the wall. So a lot of people saw those films back then. And there were they, they got a lot of publicity because the monster magazines, famous monsters and fantastic monsters, and Castle of Frankenstein were always running photos from my movies in their magazine and running little stories about me. So I built up kind of a a name and kind of a fan following. And now they're all out on DVD. You know, there's a whole uh, a DVD set, a two disc DVD set with the documentary on the making of them and everything, and uh, you know, twelve hours worth of material. So. Uh, those movies are never going to die, as far as I know. They'll all be, be out there in some form. Some of them are on YouTube. Um, you know, they just keep they just they just keep getting around. And in regards to Spider Man, like, what was the process behind working on that? Well, I made. I wasn't gonna. I had no intention of making a Spider Man movie. I made, that was made in 1969, mm-hmm. and the last one I. Amateur film I made before that was 1967, so there was a two-year gap in there, and I just got tired of making amateur movies. I said, "Well, it's I was I just got getting out of USC film school. It's time to you know uh, make professional movies now, you know." But five things happened that all came together at the same time in 1969. First of all, I had the Spider-Man costume. The Spider-Man costume was made by my mother for me to wear at in the costume contest at the 1967 World Science Fiction Convention, which I did, and I won first prize. So I had the costume. Okay, the second thing was I had just bought a new, I just bought a new um, 69 red Camaro, Chevrolet Camaro. And I don't know how it is today, but in those days, every year, one of the model kit companies would come out with a model kit of the new car. And so I said, hey, I, I could buy this model kit and paint it to look like my real car, and then I could do a scene where the car blows up. You know, I put a cherry bomb in there and some gasoline in there and shoot it in slow motion. I, could, I don't have an This is the first time I've ever had that opportunity where I'm making the movie the same year that a model kit of a car came out. Okay, so that was number two. Number three, 
was um, uh, so that's actually two and three together. Okay, uh, number four was um, there was a, a toy series called uh, Captain Action, and they had a Spider-Man figure, and there was a Spider-Man, and those Captain Action figures were jointed. So you could do stop motion animation with them, you know. So I said, "Hey, I can get this little miniature to match up with me in the suit, and I can do some scenes of animated scene of him crawling up the building, you know, maybe swinging on webs and all that sort of thing." But the last thing, and the guy who there was a guy I had a friend named Bill Warren who was pestering to make to make this movie, and I still didn't want to make the movie. But then he came up with this. He, he told me he was working for the county of Los Angeles. And when you worked for the county, you had a key, and that key opened just about every door to every facility in the county of Los Angeles, one of which was the gate to Bronson Canyon. Now, the Bronson Canyon, you'd recognize it if you saw it. Among other things, it was the entrance to the Batcave in the um, Batman TV show with Adam West. That's where the Batmobile came out. That was Bronson, Bronson Cave, Bronson Caverns. That's located in Griffith Park, but to get to it, you park your car in the parking area, and then you walk up this long hill, okay? Now, I had equipment. I had camera equipment, and I had actors, you know, and all this, and I wanted to use the car with the the cave. But my friend had that key, which opened the gate, which meant we could just drive right up that hill and park in front of the cave. And so all those things came together at the same time. And I said, you know, I'm never going to have an opportunity like this again for the, all these different elements coming together. And I made the Spider-Man movie. And, um, and that's it. That's how I made it. That's the reason I made it. I'm looking back at uh, just before that happened, too, Donald, and uh, Glenn Strange jumps out to me as the Frankenstein monster. Uh, went about and how did that actually come ha- to happen? Oh well, that um, thanks to Bob. I was out. I was in California. You know, I grew up in Chicago, and I was in California on a vacation. And uh, this was 1963, and I I knew Bob Bob Burns, and Bob Burns is um, a really good friend of Glenn Strange. And uh, I wanted I, I wanted to make an amateur film while I was in California on that vacation, using a lot of Bob Burns, whatever movie props he had at that time. You know, and he had all these original costumes and and things so we were going to make this movie anyway and it had all these it was basically a bunch of superheroes against a bunch of monsters and it was based on the spirit will eisner's spirit and um i wanted to meet glenn strange while i was there in the month and a half in the month and a half or whatever i was out there and bob called me hey fourth of july is coming up and um Billy Strange, which is actually no relation to Glenn Strange, but Billy Strange was the guy who did the. Remember the the, um, the Nancy Sinatra song, "His Boots Are Made for Walking." Sure, yeah. Well, he was the arranger on that, and he played the guitar. That boom, 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 boom. And that was old Billy Strange, and Billy Strange was going to have a barbecue on Fourth of July, and he said, "Would you like to come to come to this barbecue? Glenn Strange will be there." And I said, "You bet." Hmm. So. Anyway, I went, to, I went with Bob and his wife, Kathy, to this barbecue, and Glenn Strain was there. It was very friendly, and was, I was talking. And uh, just, you know, I'm always thinking, and my, the wheels are always turning. I said, 
gee, maybe we could get Glenn to do a um, cameo in our movie. So I, and Bob said, well, you can ask him. And I said, and would you like to do this a cameo in my movie? And he said, sure, I'll be glad to. <laughs> and then I said, is it possible you might do it as the Frankenstein monster? I'd be glad to. And that's how that all happened. <laughs> and it was just, uh, you know, just uh, I, I, I'm really lucky because a lot of things that happened to me happened by me being in the right place at the right time and one thing kind of leading to another. A lot of people don't, if they have an opportunity, they don't go with it. And if they do go with it, they don't parlay it into the next thing. And I'm always doing that. I'm figuring out this can lead to that and that can lead to that. And um, that's been the secret of, I guess, my success all these years. I do that. A lot of other people just don't bother. Now, in regards to making, you know, the amateur movies and whatnot, in this day and age, it's so easy for someone to be able to go pick up, you know, a mobile phone or, you know, a small little uh, handy cam and make a movie. And oh, yeah. It, it's such a massive change, but at the end of the day, the heart of it all is still there, you know, of going off and making that thing happen. What well, one, st- thing that, one thing that was one thing that I advantage I had, I think, was in those days you didn't have those you didn't have camcorders and phones that you could make, you know. You had to get you had to buy a roll of film, first of all. And you had to have money. And when you're a little kid to get the three dollars and fifty cents for a roll of black and white film or a few dollars more for color, that was you know, that meant you had to park a lot of cars for the ball game or you had to take a lot of bottles back to the store, you know, or wait for your birthday to come up and somebody to give you some money or save up whatever allowance you had. And then you shot it and nobody told you how to shoot it. There was no books or anything in those days that told you how to edit or do special effects or makeups or continuity or any of this stuff. You had to figure it out as you went along. And then when you shot it, then you had to take, now this is, this is the agonizing part, you took it to the camera shop for developing. And if it was um, black and white film, it would take maybe oh, five days, six days to get the film back. And even if it only took overnight or a couple days, that time was like torture because you never even knew if you were going to get an image. Maybe it was going to come out too dark or whatever. Maybe somebody was going to get in the way, you know, which frequently happened. And so it was like an adventure. It was an adventure with just the anticipation to see what you got on film, but also figuring out as you went along, hey, I want to make an Invisible Man movie. How did they do that? I saw one, you know, I saw one on Shock Theater, but I don't know how they did that. Well, let me see. How, how can I make that work? Or how can I bring a dinosaur to life? When I made those stop-motion movies, those dinosaur movies, I didn't know. I never heard about stop motion. I didn't know. I thought in Hollywood that all those dinosaurs you saw were like mechanical, you know, robots or something. That Hollywood had unlimited amounts of money and they could build something like that. I didn't know there was anything like stop motion. And then one day I was really interested in animated cartoons. I used to make these flip books, you know, where you, I would make flip books of Dracula turning into a bat and scenes out of Flash Gordon and things like that. And I figured, well, you know, if you could make a cartoon come to life with a series of drawings, maybe you could do the same thing with a model, and instead of a series of drawings, you just moved it a little bit and did one frame at a time. So we had some film left over one day from some family movies we were shooting, 
we had like about 10 feet. And uh, I set up the camera in the kitchen. I didn't have a tripod yet, so I had the cameras like sitting on the table, kitchen table. And I brought out a bunch of utensils and plates and things, and I moved them around. And I, I took one frame at a time. And we got the film back. Wow, those utensils and things were moving. So then I made my first dinosaur movie, and, and it worked, you know. So I kind of lear- I had I learned by experimenting. I didn't. I had no idea how they made those movies. And, uh, you know, same thing with doing the makeups and the transformations and all that. Person turning into a bat, turning into a werewolf or something like that. I had to figure all that out. Today, everybody knows how they did that stuff. Their books and their DVDs and TV shows that show you how. And, uh, you know, if you make a mistake, it's not like you've wasted $3 that you, it's going to take you like another couple of weeks to raise that money. It, it's all, you know, you can, you, you can shoot as much footage as you want and you're not losing any money and there's no risk involved. And um, it's a whole different world now. It's a, it's a whole different different thing now. And what would you say is like your biggest piece of advice to give to aspiring filmmakers, you know, such as yourself growing up? Well, I would say it to not just filmmakers, but if you have any kind of an urge combined with a talent to do a certain kind of a creative thing like your music like music or art or writing or acting or anything even things like you know mathematics or sports you know that's what you know joseph campbell is called following your bliss that's what you were born to do and if you don't do that if you don't follow that you're not going to be happy but if you follow it you've got to first of all um never give up no matter how dark things seem to get Never give up and learn to accept failure and rejection right when you're right from the get go because you're going to get a lot of that. And once you learn how to accept it, realize that in many cases it has nothing to do with your talent or your self worth as a human being. Um, you know, it might, it might have some practical reason. You know, you're an actor and you come in for an audition and uh, the guy casting it, you know, you've got red hair and they've already cast the leading lady with red hair, they're not going to cast a leading man with red, two people with red hair. It's crazy. And, uh, or because maybe it's on a Friday and that person is thinking about going home for the weekend and they can't give you a full, a full evaluation. When you realize that those things come into play, then you take rejection as something you just, you know, it's no big deal. I've seen writers who get their first novel rejected and they never, they never send it out again because they're so devastated. So make sure you have the talent first, then never give up, learn how to take rejection, and just keep, no matter how bad things get, sooner or later the pendulum will swing in the other direction. And if you've got the ability, and you've got the drive, once you start getting those early, early credits on your resume, everything else just falls into place. Like, you know, I don't have to prove myself anymore. I've paid my dues. So if I want to sell a book to a publisher, I can just, you know, maybe call a publisher and say, I got a book for you. This is who I am. They'll check me out on the Internet if they want to. And uh, it's not like having to prove yourself every single time, which uh, is the case when you're first starting out. And, you know, rewinding back over to a lot of the stuff involving Spider-Man, over the past, you know, almost 20 years now, this year is going to be the 18th anniversary of the uh, first ever movie version of the character you're an integral part 
integral part, whatever the word is, I'll properly pronounce it one day. Integral. There we go, that word. You're one of those words, parts of the Spider-Man mythos in the sense that you were the very first person to ever portray the person in live action. And well, I'm not, you know, I'm not really sure if I was. I mean, people say that, and I, I very well may have been. But I went to the 1973 Comic-Con in New York, and there was a guy there, well, I think he's, I, he's working in the industry in some capacity now, who made an amateur Spider-Man movie in New York. And I think he told me he made it in 1969. It's possible we made them around the same time, or he may even have preceded me. Uh, I'm not sure. I never was able to find that out. But uh, everybody says I was the first, so I'll right now I'll say, okay, I was the first. And legally, myself, as a person named Peter, I'm going to make that so. So we, <laughs> we have that now in legally binding documentation. My mom's a notary. I'll have her notarize the form. So we <laughs> okay, can... <laughs> all right. But I digress. In regards to that, you know, we have all these different interpretations of the character. And it's so cool to realize for yourself, you got to be that. You know, it doesn't matter if it was a fan film. It was still playing the character, you know? Yeah, in fact, but no buildings for him. I was, you know, I had mountains and things like that. But um, Yeah, I, I've been involved with Spider-Man in three capacities. One was, you know, I made that amateur movie. And then I ended up writing the TV cartoons. I wrote uh, four for the old, you know, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, yep. for that series. Yep. I wrote four of those because they were, re- they were re-releasing those uh, cartoons to syndication. And they needed, they needed more episodes. So I wrote four of those episodes, but without any credit. You know, we didn't get name credit on them. So I don't know if you saw any of those. That was the one with Captain America. I, I did the ones with the crossovers. I had Captain America in one. I had Submariner in the other. I had, uh, uh, I can't remember. Uh, I did one with Craven the Hunter, with, with Kazar. And then I did one with um, the Chameleon, which was sort of retold the origin. So I did those four. And then I did a bunch of them for Spider-Man and his amazing friends. So I did a bunch of the cartoon shows. And then I wrote... Uh, one of the what-if stories from Marvel Comics with Spider-Man. Well, what if somebody else had Spider-Man's powers? And I think I used him as a guest star in the Daredevil what-if I did and some of the others. So so anyway, I've been involved with Spider-Man in three different ways. and um, um, But it was fun because, you know, it, it's, it's always a fun experience when you're a writer and you were a fan of a certain character when you were younger. In my case, like Tarzan, or Captain America, or Spider-Man, and then you get to write to that, write that character, and direct that character's life. You know, you're actually making that character do what you want that character to do, and uh, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's kind of a rush. You know, it really is. And you know, with all of these different interpretations of the character, we have the theatrical versions, we have the television versions. You know, when you have Nicholas Hammond. Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, Tom Holland, you see all those different portrayals over the past 40 years. Are there any particular portrayals of the character that you enjoy? Well, I enjoyed, um, the ones I wrote were basically the original version. You know, Steve Ditko, um, John Romita, Stan Lee version of Spider-Man. And uh, the new versions, except for the movies, I have no idea what they're doing in the comic books. I haven't read a comic book probably since 
oh, I don't know, 1980s. So I, I have no idea what, what they've done with the character. You're on the same so, level with Eddie right now. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> so all I know is you know, kind of the one I, I won't say grew up with. I was already an adult when I was reading those things. A late, old, older teenager and then an adult. So um, I, I wrote, in, like in all those what-if stories I did, those are the characters I was familiar with. It was my version of Captain America was the one Stan was doing and Jack Kirby was doing. And, um, you know, just, uh, I, I was very traditional and very, um, I canonic. Is that the word? You know, that's what I was trying to be. Right. Now, in addition, you know, you mentioned that you've done work with the world of comics, you know, writing various scripts for, such as the what ifs. And I believe you also did work on, uh, the invaders. Yeah. I wrote the invaders right up until they canceled it. And, uh, I think there may be a, I don't know if they brought that back, maybe they have, but I did it when, when Roy Thomas left the book because he had other, too many things on his plate, and uh, so I took it over. And I loved doing that book. I, I loved writing Captain America and those Golden Age characters, and um, uh, yeah, so I, I did the, the last issue I did was a double issue, and it was the one that was very nostalgic for me because I said it in Chicago where I grew up. And they had a lot of the Chicago in-jokes and things in it. And when it comes to characters of Captain America, what are some of the what are some of the things with Captain America that you feel are a necessity for the character to write them? Um, I'm not sure what you mean. What... Like, you know, character traits or stuff like that. Like, you know, what makes Captain America Captain America to you when you write the character? Well, what Captain America, first of all, he was, you know, he was a super patriot. And he was... Uh, he had superpowers. I, mean, I, I never call them superpowers. I call them preternatural powers. It's like he was uh, he was uh, elevated to like human perfection, as, as good as a human being could get physically. That's what Captain America was. And in other words, he couldn't fly like Superman or or you know anything like that. Uh, for a while, Jack Kirby had uh, given him super. Before I came into it, Jack Kirby, when, when he was doing the book, gave him superhuman strength which got kind of forgotten about by the time I took it over. And uh, so I wanted to, you know, I wanted to, uh, you know, determine in the story once and for all whether he had them still or he didn't have them. So I had him in a fight or something, and, and he's saying, gee, I still wish I had that superhuman strength. Well, that established the fact that he didn't have it anymore. And so, you know, Captain America like Tarzan and some other characters are really well-defined. You almost don't have to think of story. You, you put them into a situation, and they kind of write the story themselves. You know, and, uh, and that's how Captain America was. That's how I found Captain America. But I loved writing Captain America. There was a time I see here in your, in your biography, Donald, from, from the source I pulled up from the, um, maybe it was a genre-style time period of law that you found yourself in, because I see you've done so many different things I didn't even realize until I saw the, the, bibli the bibliography, but the uh, exploitation-style films, you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, you mean like the, the men's magazine stuff? Yeah, I mean, I see films that, um, the, uh, the Mummy's well, Kiss... The movies, or you, the I movies. Mean, what are you talking about? The movies or comics or what? The movies, actually. Because all these things. yeah. Well, the movies, um, yeah, I did a lot of what they call softcore movies. I mean, they were, you know, simulated sex scenes and things. They all, they all had vampires and mummies and things in it. But the reason I got into that was because 
an opportunity came. You know, I I, I always grab an opportunity, and a lot of people, as I said, they reject them. They they don't, even, they don't bother with them. They don't think they're going to go anywhere. And I was I made a I made my first movie, Dinosaur Valley Girls, which was sort of a su- su- semi exploitation movie. It was really kind of a today it would probably get a PG thirteen. Mm-hmm. But then the company that released it said they were making these exploitation movies, these soft core movies, and we could make a lot of money if we did that, and they wouldn't cost as much to make. So, yeah, I did a whole bunch of those. And I, but I put those behind me. I don't want to do any more of those. And they actually got kind of boring to make, and, you know, I wanted to move on to something better. So that's what I'm doing now. Now I'm making monster movies, you know, with... Frankenstein and werewolves and things like that, and kind of traditional monsters with um, all the old kind of things you remember, villages with torches and silver bullets and mad scientists and laboratories and all that kind of thing. I've been lucky all my life, ever since I was a little kid, that certain things, I guess you might call them talents, certain things I've always found easy to do. Music was one of them, art was another, acting was another, and writing was another, and so I got really good grades in classes, and I didn't have to really study my, I mean, I just kind of went with the flow, you know? And um, so, you know, I've been able to spread myself around in the different, and when one thing is kind of not moving too well, you know, I can move into a whole a whole different a whole different profession, you know? I mean, I, I do things you've never heard about, you don't even, you don't even know about. Uh, for instance, you don't know probably about my musical career or that I'm the West Coast representative of the Las Vegas Talent Agency, so I'm kind of a, <laughs> a talent scout at the same time. Yeah. So I do a lot of things, and a lot of people, a lot of my contemporaries could only do one thing, could maybe only write comics, maybe only write superhero comics. And when that dried up, whether because of the the business was drying up or because they were getting too old, they were affected by what we call age bias, which is rampant in the entertainment business and in publishing and a lot of other things. Um, they couldn't do anything else. So like when my musical career kind of fizzled, when, when it was ending, that's when I figured I had to do something else. That's when I got into writing articles from magazines and books and things. And then, and then that kind of led to comics and that kind of led to animation. I mean, it's just one thing after another. And uh, But I've been lucky because I found these things easy. And second of all, I've always been a hustler. You know, I've always gone out there. You know, I don't wait for the phone to ring. I go out there and and contact people, and I let them know I'm around. I use Facebook. Facebook is the enormous tool for me. Well, some people just put pictures of their kids on there, you know, or whatever. Um or some political statement. I, I'm up there raising money and and making connections. I mean, it's it's, it's been a great advantage to me, uh, Facebook. But a lot of people just don't know how to use it, you know. <laughs> and and I figured out how to use it. Figured out what not to put on it, what to put on it, what not to say, you know. And um, so that's all all work for me. So I, I guess the answer to your question is, yeah, I've done a lot of different things. And luckily, they're all things I enjoy. So it's I've been fortunate because almost all the work I've ever done in my life are things I have fun with. It's like playing. It's like having a hobby that you get paid for. I don't have any hobbies because all my hobbies I turned into businesses and things and careers. 
And that's, you know, one of the things, you know, you mentioned about utilizing social media like Facebook. That was how I discovered you. I was like, I I think you showed up as a uh, mutual friend. Like, we have a bunch of friends in common. So I'm like, wait a minute. I know that name somewhere. I look it up. I'm like, that's Spider-Man. So, you know, shout a friend request your way. And the, the rest they say is his story. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to believe that movie, that amateur film was a... Uh was made so many decades ago. Oh. I mean, 1969, wow. What is it like knowing the impact that, you know, all these years later that, you know, some, you know, 31-year-old little schmuck uh, messages you on Facebook and says, would you do my podcast? <laughs> well, it's, it's, you know, I, I love doing interviews. And again, a lot of my contemporaries just don't do them. They just don't like them, you know. And uh, to me, that's, that's one of the ways to... I've always been a shameless self-promoter. So, you know, it's... Um, it's a way of getting your name out there. It's it's yeah. important to get your name out there all the time. And I you know have my writer friends and artist friends are not on Facebook because they don't believe in the, the, the social networking thing. And uh, and and I'm a, and it took me a long time to get on Facebook. I almost had to get on at gunpoint, and um, you know I finally did. And then I figured out how to make it work. Yeah. And um, you got to get out there. You know, if you're if you're any kind of a person in the public eye or want to be in the public eye, so as a writer or an artist or an actor or a musician or something, you got to let people. Yeah, it's not so much. You know, they used to say, uh, I used to tell actors, I, they used to say, it's not what you know, it's who you know. That's not the important thing. The important thing is who knows you, and you've got to make yourself known to people. And uh, you know, I I get people all the time. They call me a living legend and all this sort of thing, which is all kind of recent. You know, uh, I, that's kind of hard to handle. You know, uh, a legend you know, is usually somebody who's dead <laughs> or a has-been. And I, one thing I don't want to be considered is a has-been. I don't want to just rest on my laurels for something I did 40 or 50 years ago. I'm busier now probably than I was back then. You know, I'm still writing comics. I'm making movies. My musical career is starting up again, you know. I got an album coming out probably in the next few months. You know, it's I'm busy. Even with this virus thing, I'm busy all the time. And um, the only thing that's really crippled me with this uh, uh, coronavirus thing, you know, the social life is gone. And, uh, you know, you try to bunch things up in one day, like you're going to the post office and the supermarket, the pet store and everything. You try to do those all one day so you're not outside. You know, but um, I'm busy all the time. And, uh, you know, people say, when are you going to retire? Well, to me, retiring is what you do when you're on the freeway and you get a flat. And you call the trip away <laughs> and they come and they retire for you. That's what retiring means. That's I can't good. imagine not working. It's just, uh, it, it's just a horrifying thing for me. And, you know, with all of us being in quarantine, we're going off and doing new things. You know, like myself, I'm getting back into wanting to write comics. You know, I just finished up a uh, eight-page uh, mini-story, got the pages done and everything. So I got, like, something physical in my hands. Are there well, any, cool. Are there any new things for yourself? Like, you know what? I want to try this. So I got the time. I'll give it a shot. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to get back into art a little bit, back into playing music again. You know, I've got a piano here that... It's in dire need of tuning, which I just got to get around to getting that done one of these days. And, uh, you know, I, every once in a while I'll try drawing again, but I just can't get to back where I was in grammar school, you know, when I was really pretty good. The problem that happened with me with drawing, I was a pretty good artist in, when I was a kid in Chicago. 
Then I moved out here to California, and I started hanging around with people like Bill Stout and Rick Holberg and all that, you know, Sergio Aragonis. And, and then I was married for a while to an artist who was very good, and I couldn't compete with any of these people. <laughs> so I just sort of put that on the, you know, pushed that off to the wayside and concentrated on the writing and, and the other things I do. Um, but but you're, you're I, I, the quarantine, I've written a lot of comic book stories since the quarantine started. I've been writing for a magazine called uh, The Creeps, and they're coming out with a new second issue a magazine called Vampirus Car- uh, Carmilla. And uh, I've been... I've I've written so many. They must have 150 stories backlogged by me. So long after I'm gone, off the face of this earth, they're going to have stories that they're going to print forever. You know, it seems like. So, but I get an idea for a story and I sit down. I got to write it. You know, I just can't sit there and let it fester in my mind for the next two or three months or two or three years. You know, um, I got to get it. I got to get it out. I got to get it, get it finished and sent off. And you know, when it comes to writing novels, writing comic books, what is what is I'm trying to trying to word this? I should have worded this a little bit better. But like, what is the uh, biggest advantage creatively of both? Well, the disadvantage of of any creative field you're in are the slow periods, and um, there's going to be plenty of slow periods where you're not making any money. If you're married, that makes it even more difficult, especially if you have a kid or more kids, because you can't tell your kid, hey, we can't afford a new pair of shoes or you know, whatever. You can't begrudge your family that. But if you're on your own, you can tighten that belt a little bit. You know, as long as you have enough kitty litter and toilet paper, you're all, you, can, you can survive, you know? But, um, you know, so you've got to learn how to, get through those lean periods. And uh, when you're dealing with something like an animation studio or anybody that you're submitting things to, whether it's a comic book editor or publisher, uh, they're gonna, they may want changes. I mean, I'm really lucky with the, um, the stuff I'm doing for the Creeps magazine. Out of all the countless stories I've done for them, They've only made one change, and that was in the name of a character, which they did for reasons which would be too long to explain here. But uh, maybe they were right, maybe they were wrong, but the story was the same. They have, Otherwise, they, as far as I know, they haven't changed a word. But, you know, when you're working for DC or Marvel or Gold Key or all these other companies I work for, with the exception of Charlton, Charlton pretty much left you on your own. But you're always at the mercy of some editor changing something. Sometimes that would throw off your entire story, the pace of it, and then there was nothing you could do. But still, even with those drawbacks, to me, if if your list, as Joseph Campbell would say, was writing a, was being a writer, and that's what you love to do, even writing something you didn't like or had something that something was changed is still better than the alternative, which is working in a day job somewhere, doing something you didn't particularly like. You know, like working in a supermarket, being a bagger or something, or working in a restaurant. You know, to me, I mean, I wrote a lot of stuff I didn't like. I wrote a lot of really crappy stuff, a lot of those Saturday morning cartoons. I used to work with the teen magazines, you know, writing, making up interviews with David Cassidy and Michael Jackson and all these people. And, um, you know, even that, it was still writing. 
even that was better than working as a waiter. And um, <laughs> so to me, even the drawbacks, with the drawbacks, it's still worth it. Now, you know, w- with uh, comic writing, there's, of course, the relationship between the artist and the writer. And, you know, from my personal experience, it can be, you know, it can be a very uh, challenging thing or it could be a really great thing. I'm lucky that I've, you know, dealt with the latter where, you know, I basically said to uh, my artist, I'm like, you have creative freedom. Do whatever you want to do. Yeah. You know, when it comes. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Uh, when it comes to you know the relationship between artists and writers, for an aspiring uh, writer, what would you say is the best piece of advice for collaborating with an artist? Well, if you want it, if you're really adamant about something looking a certain way, describe it in your script or if you're working Marvel style in your synopsis that the artist is going to see. Um, Sometimes, you know, it really doesn't matter. Sometimes, you know, um, some of my descriptions... I, I, I know I was working with one artist, and I thought my descriptions were pretty uh, detailed. And he said, oh, you know... And this was doing Marvel style, you know, where you write a synopsis, and then you get the art, and then you write your script over the synopsis. Uh, I was working with one artist uh, who, who used to work on the Kung Fu book with Doug Munch, and he said, oh, your, your, your synopsis are... There's almost no deal. You're giving me so much freedom. When I work with Doug, he would have like seven, eight, or nine, ten pages of a synopsis, you know. And you know, I didn't work that. We just worked different ways. But in some cases, you know, Marvel, I got more of a uh, an opportunity to collaborate with the artists because you wrote a synopsis, and then you got the penciled artwork back. And you wrote your script over the pencils. So you could see what that artwork was going to look like before it ever went to the ink stage. And you could make changes. Sometimes you erase something yourself. I did it a few times. And, um, you know, like a change of a costume or something like that. In the case of some scripts, though, you never, you don't know what the story is going to look like until it's published in the book. Then you see it for the first time. And sometimes they get it right on. They just... They, you know, they, they, what you had in your head is exactly what's on the paper. Sometimes it's completely different, and uh, then it's too late to change it. Uh, so, um, no, you gotta, you gotta be, you, you can't be a prima donna because you, you know they're they're just comic books for for. I mean, they're not. It's not like you're. It's great Michelangelo masterpiece or something. It's uh, or the great great American novel. It's uh, it's not Shakespeare or something like that. It's comic books, and if they make a mistake or something, you know, um, you know, they move on to the next one, and maybe they won't make the mistake the next time. But uh, I've had some you know, horrendous mistakes where people misinterpreted something I said, you know, because they were from some, you know, the Philippines or Spain, and you use a you use a term that's like a an American. Um, idiom or something, you know, slang, and they take it literally, and they draw literally what you said, you know. I remember I was working on a movie once, an Ultraman movie, and I had a character in there who was jealous uh, about somebody, something or other, and somebody said, oh, um, you know, it looks like the green-eyed monster is raising his ugly head again. Okay, you know, meaning he was jealous. And at two in the morning, I got a telephone call from the Japanese producer, what is this, you know, because I had monsters in this. It was an Ultraman 
movie. And he says, what is this green-eyed monster? It's not mentioned anywhere else in the script. What is this all about? And I had to explain to him that that was a, a slang thing taken from a, a Shakespeare play, green-eyed monster. And, and so those are the things you're dealing with. You, you, you've got to be careful how you word things sometimes, especially when you're dealing with artists and producers and directors from uh, different where English is not their first language. So now, before we wrap this episode up, Donald, big thank you from both Eddie and myself for joining the show today. Oh, my pleasure. And of course, you have an open invite to guest on whenever you want to talk. Uh, you know, whatever uh, projects you have coming up, we would love to speak with you about them. Okay, well, you know, don't be shy about asking me, because with me, projects are always coming up. And if you go to my website, com, one of my six websites, I think, but that's my, like my professional website there's a news section and whenever there's something new like a new book coming out like um there was a new solomon kane book that marvel just put out that had all my solomon kane stories in it i put i mentioned that in the news section with a picture of the cover and everything so that's where you can find out what i'm doing now and i've been doing a lot of convention appearances too uh not so much now because of this virus thing and a, a, a few of them have been canceled or postponed till next year but all that kind of stuff is on there or if anybody wants to reach me and tells you how to do that um yeah just keep looking at the news section every once in a while and you know then you know what's what and also my facebook page um i don't know for facebook friends if not send me a request and uh you know i'll, I'll confirm that very cool. Excellent. That could very well be happening then. Yeah, Solomon Kane, I see from uh, Savage Sword of Conan, which I guess predates the uh, the limited series that Marvel put out on Solomon as well. Yeah, I, I never so I see. I never liked Solomon Kane. <laughs> I wrote a lot of them. I, I never liked Sword and Sorcery. Really, I wrote a lot of it. I did. I did Cole at Marvel, and I did Vagar uh, at, uh, at Gold Key, and a couple other things here and there. But I never enjoyed Sword and Sorcery, but I wrote a lot of it. So once I stopped writing Cole, or once I stopped writing Solomon Kane, I never looked at another issue. That was it. Well, Donald, congratulations on all the different things that you've been involved with and done, and you've gotten to know over the years what you liked, what you didn't like, but it sounds like for the most part you liked a lot of what you did, and continued success and keep on doing what you're doing. We greatly appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Well, I appreciate you having me on, and thank you very much. For The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Don Glute, and uh, you stay safe out there, and I hope you keep reading my stuff. And I'm Eddie Wilson, Excelsior.